We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There are Bibles still in the back. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. You'll need it. Um, if you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We would certainly want everyone to have God's Word. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going through the books of First and Second Samuel. There are one book in the Hebrew canon in the Old Testament, just Samuel. Um, and I, 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 I have I chose tough to choose words to try to express to you this morning the emphasis of Second Samuel chapter seven. The, 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 the narrative, this historical time in redemptive history, in the, in the work of God in the salvation of mankind. Other than Jesus, David is one of the most central figures in the Bible. And David is a, a crucial link between Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, to the Lord Jesus Christ. David's place in the unfolding story of God's redeeming work cannot be overstated. I want you to feel that. It is my hope today that as we look at chapter 7 today, I'm going to look at the second part next week. It is my hope that when you're talking and you're thinking through some Old Testament narratives and the importance of some of those, that chapter 7 will be stuck in your brain. Whether it's creation Adam and Eve, whether it's the flood of Noah, you may be thinking about, whether it's the call of Abraham, maybe it's the the law given to Moses and the Ten Commandments, maybe a great prophet like Elijah. But I hope today as we walk away, you'll see the monumental work of God, the, the, the monumental truth and grace of what God is doing through the life of David. In particular, what is known as the Davidic Covenant. This chapter, this narrative is huge. Uh. <laughs> I'm going to read the passage just through verse 17. Uh, and my hope is that we'll get some context. We've got a lot is going on in, in the story that brought us to this place. And then I want to... For a moment, well, a few moments, if you know me, to, to just lay some groundwork of what the biblical, historical biblical context is, particularly how this story draws back to Genesis 3, forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, and all the covenants that God has made with God's people. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And we the people of God, should be overflowing with joy and gratitude because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's my hope at the end. Worship. Second Samuel chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord, the infallible, authoritative word of God. Second Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He didn't do that. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, but, hmm, I love it, but. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, verse 16, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This chapter is monumental. Davidic covenant. Let me, let me just lead up to this, and, and I, I really want you to see the weightiness of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what has taken place up to this point in David's life and in Israel. God promised in Deuteronomy to Moses in the Torah, in the, in the, in the Pentateuch, in the law, that he was going to establish a king in Israel. Deuteronomy 17 It will be the one whom the Lord will choose from among your brothers. He will sit on the throne of his kingdom and the king shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law. The king is to have the law approved. That law approved by the Levitical priest. He, the king, shall read it all the days of his life. He will learn to fear the Lord, keeping the words of the law and these statutes and doing them. The one God has chosen, we know, is King David. But it took a long time to get here, did it not? David was anointed king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but there was another king already in the land. His name was Saul. Saul was the one that Israel chose for themselves. Out of rebellion of God, they wanted their own king. They didn't want God to be their king. And they wanted a king like all the other nations. And God gave them Saul, teaching them and us a lesson, right? Sometimes, (laughs) be careful what you ask for. We talked about that. But after Saul's death, there was a civil war. We've been covering it for the past couple of weeks. 
And to some degree, it was rather a holy war as well. I mean, who is going to reign over God's people? Who is going to sit on God's uh, throne here on earth? And it was a, lots of bloodshed. You had 11 kingdoms of the north and one kingdom of the south. At the end of the civil war, the 11 kingdoms to the north yielded to David, who was king of the south of one tribe called Judah. The kingdom, as we have seen the past two weeks, the kingdom under the king in Israel is now consolidated. The 11 tribes and the one tribe are consolidated under King David, who is crowned the king over all of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 3 of Second Samuel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, which is on the south, and, did, and made a covenant. Look what it says, chapter 5, verse 3 of Second Samuel. And King David made a covenant with them, all of Israel, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David consolidates the kingdom, the war is over, and he's crowned the king. And what happens next is David conquers the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites were there. And he's carrying in, last week we saw it, carrying in the Ark of the Covenant. Pastor Ricky did a great job on talking about the importance of what the covenant meant. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant was. It was located in the, in the Holy of Holies. It was a place, uh, we saw the picture last week, where God would meet with his people. The Shekinah glory would come down between the cherubims. And the broken laws were in, the laws were bro- that God had set were inside this covenant. And, and, and once a year, in the day of Yom Kippur, the holy priest, the high priest would go in and, and shed the blood of the animals and pour it on the mercy seat. And God was then free to forgive them as blood was interposed between the holy God and people who violated his law. That's the Ark of the Covenant. The visible representation of God's presence among his people, where God would meet with his people. It would, it would convey rulership over the people. So I want you to catch this. I want you to see this. The anointed king, the one that God has chosen to reign and rule over God's people in God's city, Jerusalem, with the very presence visible manifestation of the Ark of the Covenant in that city. There is one king, the consolidation of one king, crowned king, David, in a conquered city, carrying the Ark, and now in Jerusalem, there is David reigning and ruling over God's people, and there is God himself. In the, in the presence and manifestation of the Ark of the Covenant. The king of Israel will rule now. Consolidating the kingdom, David will rule under the presence, the command, and the rule of God in God's city. I want you to feel that. As we get to chapter 7, that's what's going on in Israel. Just two points. Really four, I, I masked it as two. Rest and request, response and reign. All this is going on in Jerusalem, consolidating the kingdom, crown king of Israel, captured the city, carrying the ark. Chapter 7, verse 1 opens. And we see David's rest. Now when the king lived in his house, 
And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, remember Samuel's dead. He was the prophet of Israel. Now Nathan comes on the scene and we'll see more of Nathan as the story unfolds. But Nathan's there, the prophet. And David says, the king says, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, the ark of God dwells in a tent. David's living in Jerusalem. There's prosperity, there's security, there's peace. Excuse me. One can imagine the king's outside sipping an espresso on the rooftop, hanging out with the prophet, looking out over his kingdom, seeing this consolidation. He's crowned king. Things are going really well. There's peace. There's prosperity. There's rest. And David turns to Nathan and says, something's not right. Something wrong with this picture. I am now king over the people of God. I I dwell in this house with magnificent structure and beautiful wood, and there is the presence of God, the visible manifestation of God in a tent. Probably was a very nice tent. I don't know. But in comparison to David's house, it was just a tent. As we read in chapter 5, David had visitors from Tyre. Kings have brought cedars and and carpenters and masons. We can only imagine what this house looked like. But look what David says. Look what David says in chapter 7. The Lord has given him rest. He knows that. That, That's what the scripture says. The Lord has given him rest. It was the good providence of God that gave David security, peace, and rest. And, And family, that's the formula (laughs) that's the way, that's the form of us serving the Lord with everything we have, including our finances. Now, we're not a church that says, you know, we'll bless that seed offering and, you know, the prosperity gospel. We're not that at all. But we are a church that is motivated to give of your your finances, of your your talents, of your gifts, and and serving the Lord through the gospel. We're a gospel-centered church. David is looking around. He's saying, the Lord has given me all this. The Lord has given me rest and peace. The Lord has given me security. I just can't sit around looking at the grace of God and do nothing about it. He just say, Lord, I will build you a house. I will build you a beautiful place. And then you will give me rest and security. No, that's not what he said. It was the other way around. That's a slippery slope. We've got to remind ourselves the gospel every day. The Apostle Paul was seeking monetary support on his missionary journey, and he writes to the Corinthian church. Instead of saying, I want your money, I'm an apostle, I demand your money, I'm the one who planted this church, you'd be going to hell if not for me. He says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich, In heaven's glory, yet for your sake he became poor. He became like one of us. So that by his poverty you might become rich, rich in the gospel. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians that their giving, their financial giving to the churches that were hurting in actually was in, 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 in Jerusalem, their giving was a generosity that came from their submission and their confession of the gospel. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. That's what he's saying. 
And David is rehearsing the gospel and he's saying, I need to do something about this. And he turns to the prophet and he says, I need to build something. He doesn't say it explicitly, but, but we know what he means by that. It, it wasn't appropriate that he lives in his place and yet God is dwelling in a tent. And Nathan turns to him and commentators are all over the place. And Nathan says, go and do what, what's in your heart, right? Go, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Now, this is not Nathan speaking as a prophet. People say, oh, you got it wrong, we'll see. But Nathan is, is with David. David is asking or, or telling him what he should do. And he says, do what's in your heart, David. Obviously, God is with you. It was, I thought it was a good idea. It was a good idea. And, and, and we'll see later on in the narrative that God comes to David, excuse me, Nathan, and tells him, no, tell David, no, no, no. He's not going to build it. Solomon's going to build it. And I, and I love the way that Nathan tells David, go and do what's in your heart. And then God comes to Nathan, not some other prophet, and comes to Nathan and says, okay, listen, that sounded good. I know it looks good, but that's not, that's not what I want, right? Nathan gives advice, but it's not in par with what God wanted. And the Bible doesn't condemn Nathan, doesn't condemn David for their desires. In fact, Second Chronicles says that what David asked was, well, you did well what is in your heart. That David asking, I'm going to build him a house. He just wants to glorify God. I think his motives are right. I just think God has a different plan. And some desires we have are not necessarily wrong. Some dreams we have, some desires we have just may not be what God wants for us. Right? It's that God sometimes tells us wait. God sometimes tells us no. It's not only because of, of discipline, sometimes we get disciplined that way, but just because God wants to go in a different direction. And we don't know. And sometimes it's hard to know, right? Sometimes we just need to be in his word, we need to be in worship, we need to be in community, and we need to be listening and waiting until the Lord gives us direction. Because sometimes our desires aren't bad necessarily, they just may not, may not be that in which God wants for us. But praise God for his word. Because he doesn't leave David like that. He doesn't leave Nathan like that. He comes the very next day, verse 5. It's not like six months later, David's halfway invested into this thing. Oh, by the way, uh, I know you spent a lot of money and everything, but God doesn't want you to do that. The very next day. Now Nathan comes, thus saith the Lord. See that? Verse 5. He comes to Nathan. Go and tell my servant. Listen, go and tell my servant. It's just reminding David that you're the king and there are servants that are serving you, but remember your role. You're still under me. My servant, David. Go tell my servant, David. And we need to be reminded of that. No matter what position we hold, whether it's lead pastor or any other place, we submit to Jesus first. You would build me a house, he says. In other words, are, are you going to build me? No, you're not going to build me. It's rhetorical. The answer is no. And then God goes into this history lesson. There was a time under Moses, the leadership. No one, I didn't ask anybody to build me a house. We put it in a tent. That's where it was supposed to be. I brought you out of Egypt. I traveled with my people. He used the word move twice. It's not that God's restricted in some sort of box. And I think the emphasis here is that God wants to teach them and teach us that he came to his people who were suffering. God was in that land. God brought them out. God was there with Abraham. He traveled as his people travel. During the time of judges, I said to be, they were to shepherd you. Did I ask them to build me a house? I didn't do that. 
I moved when you moved. Ralph David writes an interesting evaluation of the text. Listen to this. He says, do you see what Yahweh is saying? Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He's the God who travels with his people. In all their topsy-turvy, here and there, journeys and wandering. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God sharing the rigors and journeys with them. That's the point. I've been with you. God's presence by his spirit through his son is in us, with us, family of God, through all our tops and turvies, all our difficulties. He loves us in Christ. He cares about us. He came to us and he dwells within us. I read a story this week, a man by the name of Paul Bowler. He's a presidential scholar. He's passed. He's an older gentleman. Uh, he passed away. He wrote a, he wrote a story about a, a, a man named Sam Rayburn. If you remember him, he was the Speaker of the House way back. He writes this story. He says, the teenager, a teenage daughter of a reporter named Rayburn, that somebody at Rayburn knew. He's the, he's the Speaker. Let me start again. The teenage daughter of a reporter Rayburn knew died suddenly. So the Speaker of the House knew a reporter whose daughter died suddenly. The next morning, the reporter heard a rapping on his apartment door and opened it and found the speaker of the house, Rayburn, standing there. I just came by to see what I could do to help. The reporter, stuttering and trying to cover, uh, recover from his surprise, indicated that he didn't think there was anything the speaker could do. They were just making arrangements for his teenage daughter. Well, the speaker said, have you had your coffee this morning? <laughs> The reporter was confused. They hadn't had time to do that yet. Well, he said, at least I can do is make you a cup of coffee. And the Speaker of the House, Rayburn, went in, went into the kitchen and looking for the coffee. And while he was in there, the, 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 the reporter remembered that today was the day that he had a weekly appointment at the White House. So he inquired. He said, Mr. Speaker, I, I, I thought you were supposed to have breakfast at the White House on this morning. Well, I was, the speaker admitted. But I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't make it, end quote. Do you know God that way? I, I'm not trying to be irrelevant and make light of the holiness of God. I'm not. I'm just trying to convey and illustrate the loving presence of a God who loves you and cares for you and is with you. It was in you. In your trials, in your struggles, in your difficulties. He's present when you need him most. David's rest and request. Next, God's response and reign. Now, as we get into this text, it's what is known as the Davidic covenant, and we'll see that. Chapter 8, you can turn to Psalm 89 while you're there, because that's where we're going first. The, and, I, and we need to just take a side note, because this is really, really important, okay? God's response is to make a covenant with David, okay? God's response is to make a covenant with David, and he will do so here. That's what makes this so important, so important. Now, the word covenant is not in Second Samuel 7, does not mean it's not a covenant. Why? Because there are other passages of Scripture that clearly teach us that it's a covenant. 
2 Samuel 23, 1 Kings 3 talks about a covenant that God made with David. Psalm 89 is one of those places that is explicit in its teaching. So I put it up there. Some of the psalm. I can't read the whole thing. Psalm 89. You have said, verse 2, I don't have verse 2 on my notes. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring, your seed forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah, which means stop, reflect. Verse 20, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. God speaking. My faithfulness and my steadfast chesed, love, covenantal love, shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted, power and authority be exalted. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love. I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, which we do, if they violate my statute and do not keep my commandments, which we do, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes Praise God for Jesus, but I will not remove my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring offspring or seed shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. God is a covenant making and covenant keeping God. A covenant is an oath bound relationship between two or more parties. In divine covenants, God sovereignly establishes his relationship with his creatures. God binds himself by his own oath to keep his promises and it is by his prerogative to do so we don't make covenants god makes them with us when it comes to divine we have a covenant of marriage i'm not talking about that I'm talking about god making covenant with us the first covenant in scripture is the adamic covenant i'll just go through this quickly the covenant of creation the covenant god made with adam and just like this text in second samuel 7 the word covenant is not in genesis 1 2 or 3 but all the ideas of a covenant are clearly explicitly there right you have blessings you have curses there's language that talks about covenant with blessings and curses there's also explicitly taught that adam was in covenant with god in other places of scripture adam we know disobeyed if you if you obey you get blessed if you disobey you get cursed Adam, we know, disobeyed God. And he received the curse. We all do. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And because Adam sinned, all have sinned, Genesis, uh, excuse me, uh, Romans tells us. But in the midst of chaos, listen, in the midst of, of brokenness, in the midst of the curses, God speaks because there's grace in God's covenants. There's grace. You failed, 
But God speaks a word of redemption. God speaks a word of rescue in the midst of this broken covenant, Genesis 3.15. God says, I will, not I may, but I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes a promise, a grace promise, that a singular man, a deliverer will come. The serpent will wound him, but in the end, he will crush him. That's called the, the gospel, the, the proto-evangelium, the, the very first gospel in your Bible. And ever since then, God is working through the seed to deliver, to rescue, to forgive man, to conquer sin, Satan, death, and hell. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. Right? Humanity is rebelled against his maker. Uh, the Bible tells us that every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. And God sends a flood. But what does he do? He shows grace. He rescues Noah. Noah's a sinner. I know it says he was righteous, but not in that sense. Not that, not that he was perfect. And God establishes covenant with Noah, and he, and, he, and he promises never, ever, ever to flood the earth again. That's grace. Then God calls Abram, or Abraham. Changed his name to Abraham from Abram, father of many nations. God promises him what? A great name, a land, many descendants. In the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul says that when God told Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham, chapters 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis, that he was preaching the gospel to him in Galatians. When he said all the earth will be blessed, he's pointing to the seed, and his name is Jesus. God makes that promise. Then there's the covenant that God made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the lawgiver. And God established a covenant with Israel to make them his chosen possession. They are to be a royal, a royal nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a light to the cities. And all the peoples of the world will come to know the God of Israel. It wasn't just for them. And the law was given and stipulations were given. But let me tell you, there were blessings and curses. But let me tell you, there was grace. Don't let anyone tell you that the law of God is not filled with grace. Did God give the law after they were redeemed or before? After. Did God rescue his people, then give them the law? Or did God say, bathe this law and I'll rescue you? No, he didn't do that. He rescued the people for his own glory, by his own grace, and then gave them the law. Listen, God reveals himself to Moses and said, this is who I am. Because the law reflects his character. He didn't have to do that. He could have just left us in our own way, groping around trying to figure things out. Sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning, but he didn't do that. God also gives in the law the sacrifices. That's grace. Allowing the people to come before him and he gives them blood to atone for their sins. That's grace. Now God makes a covenant with David. God makes a covenant with David. I don't have to get, I can't get into all the nuances and comparing covenants, but let me tell you, there are some distinctions, but there is absolute continuity. That God in his character and his nature and his work, not only in creation but in redemption, has made covenants with, God, with, with us, bringing us and culminating it to David and then finally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Davidic covenant combines all that and points to Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus Christ. 
Our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God makes this covenant with David and narrowing everything God is doing in redemptive history to the family line, to the dynasty, and to the reign of David, the chosen king of Israel. First, in chapter eight, uh, verse 8, is a look back. So God is making this covenant, and he looks back, and he tells, he tells him about his, uh, him leaving the pasture, becoming prince in the presence of God. Now, now verse 8, right. Therefore, God is speaking to David through the prophet. Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9a, and I will, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies before you. All past tense verbs, right? God calls him my servant, takes him down this memory lane. He says, I am the Lord of hosts. Ricky mentioned it last week. It speaks of, of sovereignty, omnipotent power, authority, reign, and rule. David went from shepherding sheep to shepherding God's people to ruling leading the people of God. And every time that David fought against his enemies, God makes it clear, I gave you that victory. God is reminding David of his presence with him and his power for him. What a contrast, right, to Saul. David regularly sought the will of God. David regularly went in to say to the Lord, what should I do? Should I go up? Will you give them into my hands? And God would answer him. And God is saying to David now, you're not doing anything for me. You only do things through me. It's by grace alone my power has come to you. It's by grace alone that you have defeated your enemies and have success. Took you from the pasture, prince over my people. My presence has been with you. And then he takes a look forward. He talks about his prosperity, about being a great name. Listen, 9b, I will make for you a great name. Does that sound familiar? Like the name of the great ones on earth, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as, as before. From the time that I appoint the judges over my people, Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. <laughs> past present, past tense, now forward, looking forward to the, to the future, that should sound familiar to you, by the way. That should sound familiar. God promised to make David a great name and a place for his people to dwell. Does that sound familiar? That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. And you can see this continuity between Abrahamic covenant and now the Davidic covenant made here in 2 Samuel. Remember, the nation was a descendant of Abraham. That was promised from Genesis 3. And the writer of the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David, the son of heaven. Both of them together, you see, he's going to make him a great name, as he told Abraham. He's going to give him a place for his people to dwell. He won't be afflicted anymore. He's pointing to that promise. God will make David secure because God wants to make Israel secure. He establishes the Davidic dynasty for the sake of his people. And in verse 11, at the end of this, God puts a spin on that word house. The word house can mean a dwelling place with a roof, uh, uh, material. And that's what David meant. 
And then God takes that same, that same word as being used and he spins it on his head. He's not talking about a house. He's talking about a people because that's what that word could mean as well. So you want to build me a house and structure, I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. You want to build me a house, I'm going to build you a people. God will be the builder of the house, not David. In antiquity, back in the days, a king would conquer a land and whatever God they worship, small g, whatever God they worship, the God of their, their territory, they would go into the place, establish a, a, a nation, and then they would build a house for their God that gave them the victory. That would be something they would do in those days. The pagans would do it. And David is kind of thinking that along that way and thinking, I need to build something. But what is so different with David and with David's God, the creator of the universe, is that in those days, they would, they would say, I will build you a house, and I will place you in this house, and you will give me rest and peace. The opposite is happening here. See, every religion, every religion works on the principle, you build your God a house, and then God will continue to bless you. You do something for your God, and God will bless you. But this time, the God of grace steps in and says, you're not building me a house. I'm the God of sheer grace. I will build you a house. I will build you a lineage. You're going to receive divine blessing. It'll be unconditionally loved by me, not, not you. You're not going to earn this, David. I'm going to do it. He's not exalting himself. He's trying to do something, and God just flips it around. And God now is stepping into history of redemption and revealing more and more of the promise that he made from Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of Satan. Where is that seed going to come from? Where, where's, the, where's the promise to Abraham? Where's the Mosaic promise? Where's all these promises going to come from? From the dynasty of David. His throne is forever. His kingdom is forever. God steps in and makes a covenant promise to David. I want you to see that. I want you to see three things that are really important about this covenant. Number one, the Davidic covenant cannot be destroyed by death. I love that word, by the way. That's not my word. God's promise in the Davidic covenant is indefinite. Say that with me. Indefectible. I love it. I had to look it up. I'm like, I, I know where it comes from. Indefectible. Indefectible. Nothing shakes it. <laughs> Nothing. It's indefectible. Nothing. There's no defects. Nothing will escape the reality and truth of the Davidic promise that God has made. It's indefectible. It won't be destroyed by death. Look, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, you're going to lie down with your fathers. You'll be dead. I will raise up from your seed, from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name. I'll establish his throne of his kingdom forever. So David will die. Like everybody before him, everybody after him will die. Except one who will rise. Just as God promised Abraham, so he continues to promise with David, his seed, his offspring will continue the kingly line and he will build a literal house. We know who that is. David doesn't know. We know that that'll be Solomon. 
Solomon will come from David and will be David's son, and Solomon will build that temple. We know that. But the, that won't destroy this Davidic covenant. And secondly, the Davidic covenant can be, not be disbanded by disobedience. Look at verse 14. I will be to him, Solomon, the one who built the temple, a father, and he shall to be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, and he does. With the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men, but, verse 15, mark it, my chesed, my steadfast love, will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, you may say, well, Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Okay, that's New Testament. Go back. This was uncommon today, in this day. God was seen as the Father of Israel, but that one-in-one relationship as Father-Son wasn't heard of in this day. This was brand new, or at least very, very rare. And God's saying there's this relationship This relationship went, I will chastise him, I will discipline him, but I will continue to love him. Unlike Saul, when he disciplined, he removed his kingdom from him. Remind me of Hebrews 12. You have forgotten that the exhortation that addresses you as sons of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplined the one he loves and chastised every son whom he receives. There's this relationship now, this one-on-one father and son relationship that when I sin and when I rebel, Solomon, you're gonna be disciplined, but I will not, like I did with Saul, I will not remove my covenantal love upon you. That is my promise. Even when you sin. Can't be destroyed by death. Can't be disbanded by disobedience. And finally, the Davidic covenant cannot be dissolved by duration. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, reliable, faithful, stable, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all the words and in accordance with all the vision. Nathan then spoke these things to David. And that Hebrew term forever is found eight times in the chapter seven. Eight times. Forever, forever, forever. Your kingdom, your throne will be forever. Only two ways to do it. God is either going to raise up a king who has a son perpetually. We know that's not true. Just read the New Old Testament. Kings will vanish. Babylon will come in. Assyrian will come in. There'll be no more kings. Or, or, what the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost and speaking about the Davidic covenant and the seed coming from David's body. For you, he says, Peter, will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Brothers, he says to his fellow Jews, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set up one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, he, he, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Do you see how beautiful the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is? 
You need an eternal son to reign on an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom who will never die again. It is through Christ alone that the everlasting kingdom and throne can be established. Hear the words of Isaiah common to all of us. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, almighty, sovereign one, will do this. And as years pressed on in the days of Israel, And multiple men failed, and kings failed, and David failed, and Israel is swept into exile. But a child is born. A Davidic child is born, a son is given, in him there is no sin. He trampled over death and has begun his endless reign at the place of supreme power and authority in the universe, seated at the right hand of his father. The Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. All the Old Testament covenants anticipate something greater. It was given to David, pointing to Jesus. And Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, said this about the new covenant. There'll be a new covenant. There'll be a new covenant. God will appoint David. This is what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach their neighbor. Saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. When Gabriel came to the city of Galilee in Nazareth to a virgin, and the, and the angel said, O favored one to Mary. She was troubled. He said, Don't be afraid. You found favor in God. And behold, you were conceived in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. (laughs) Hebrews says he's a mediator that came to redeem us. He appeared the first time to remove sin as a sacrifice. He will come again in judgment. He will bring salvation to those who are waiting. (laughs) Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus is the greater son of David. He sacrificed himself on the cross and bears our sins. His victorious resurrection provides guarantee of new life. The promise has begun. And the kingdom has come in Christ. His death and resurrection and people from every nation and every tribe will gather together. uh, Excuse me, Revelation tells us. And the final realization of his final kingdom comes when Jesus comes. The promise of God. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the cup. 
First he took bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body. This is my body. It was given for you. Do this in remembrance of my broken body on your behalf as your substitute. Then he took the cup. The son of David, the greater son of David, the son of Abraham, took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Family, it is my desire, it is my hope that as we celebrate communion, you will remember not so much the covenant God made, but the God of the covenant and worship him because he has made a way. He promised an oath-binding promise of himself that he would send his son on our behalf, and he did. Do you know Jesus, the promised one? Thousands of years given to David and then fulfilled in Christ. That's what this table is. The bread is his body was broken. The cup symbolizes death and blood shed on the cross. The band will play. We'll take communion together. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn from your sins. And then celebrate God's love. The covenant that God made because God is a covenant-making God and we should rejoice in that as we sing. We're going to come two rows down the center aisle and go out that way. That's the way we'll do communion. Do you know Christ that way? If you have, tables open to you. If you haven't, that's okay. We love you. We're glad you're here. We want to talk to you about Jesus. But this table is for the family of God who've trusted in the God of covenants, who made a covenant with his son, who gave his blood so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. Father, it's amazing (laughs) how you through centuries, thousands of years, have kept your promises. So many times, Lord, whether it's in the life of Adam or Abraham or even Moses, you could have just turned your back and allowed all of us to go away from you eternally in hell. But because of your steadfast love, because you have made a promise, you sent Jesus Christ, the Son of the eternal son who now sits and reigns on his throne. And someday will come and establish an eternal throne in the new heavens and the new earth. Help us, Lord, to just worship you in spirit and truth, give you all the glory and the praise and the majesty that belongs to you alone as we confess our sins, as we turn from our sins, but also as we celebrate that you have forgiven all our sins because of Jesus and the new covenant that you have promised. And it's in his name we pray, amen.